0: Let me ask you, please, to turn to Romans in chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, I want to read verses um, 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3. As I begin to read this, just a, a note. This has been called by many... We read commentaries on these passages, um, perhaps the most important paragraph that's ever been written. Everything in the Bible's inspired, but many look to this passage as one that uh, is great import for us. In fact, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago after we sang one of his hymns, William Cooper, that um, In his discouragement and depression, he often turned to the scriptures, of course, and after being in such a time of anxiety and despair of life, he read this passage that I'm about to read, and here was his comment. He said, on reading this passage, I received immediate power to believe. The rays of the sun of righteousness fell upon me in all their fullness. I saw complete sufficiency of the expiation which Christ had wrought for my pardon and entire justification. In an instance, I believed and received the peace of the gospel. If The arm of the Almighty had not supported me. I believed that I would have been completely overwhelmed with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears. transports choked my utterance. I could only look to the heavens in silent fear overflowing with love and wonder. And uh, I have to tell you, I approached this passage with a certain measure of fear and trembling because it was about 40 years ago, I think, that I read this passage and then a sermon to accompany it called The Vindication of God. It gave me nothing less than what I would describe as spiritual whiplash. And I, ended on my, I ended up on my face before the Lord marveling at the salvation that is ours in Jesus. Because I realized, and it's so commonplace to us because we talk so much about it, but before the gospel is about us, it's about God. And because it's about God, the part about us is perfectly secure and true. So, as we come to read this passage, I've printed in the bulletin for us a prayer of illumination. It was from St. Patrick, but I think helpful to us. So as we begin, let's uh, pray this together. Permit us not, O Lord, to worship in vain. Convince us of your truth. Cause us to feel its power and to bind us to yourself with cords of faith and hope. In love that shall never be broken. We're bound to you alone, your power to hold us, your hand to guide us, your eye to watch us, your ear to hear us, your wisdom to teach us, your word to give us speech, presence to defend us this day and every day. For to you belong the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 This is the word of the Lord But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, Paul begins this this section, this paragraph, with two um, contextually small but arresting words, but now. You see, Paul had left us speechless in the previous paragraph. He left us speechless before God because of our sin, because he was right Paul concluded, and as we read, we concluded, he was right to condemn us. In fact, he gives these chilling words in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He says that none of us can be justified. That is, none of us can be not only pardoned of our sin, but also declared by God to be right. That's what righteous means, to be right. This word justified comes from the law courts. It was the verdict of a judge. A judge could say, you're pardoned, you're not guilty. But in this sense, it's even more than just you're not guilty, but, but you're right. One commentator put it like this. He says, forgiveness will say, you may go, you may be let off the penalty which you deserve. That is, its punishment is remitted. But justification will say, you may come. You're welcome to all my love and acceptance. That is, there's no grounds for your punishment. It's forgiveness of sins, but it's a declaration that we're right. We, we read this this morning in, in our profession of faith from the Heidelberg. We, we, we read, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if... I had never sinned nor been a sinner as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. That's the amazing thing. And when we're told that there's no justification, that none will be justified in his sight through the law, that's a devastating remark because we realize Through the law, there's no forgiveness of sins. Through the law, there's no reconciliation, there's no restoration, there's no righteousness. And just as a note, this little word justify is the same Greek word as the word righteous. And so some have uh, rather awkwardly, but helpfully, I think, translated this as being righteous by God. There'll be no righteousing by God through the works of the law. See, the best the law can do is this point the, the best the law can do is to point out our sin. I don't know, but I, I got up this morning, got up fairly early, got up, and looked in the mirror, and it was even a worse sight than what you're looking at now. But it wouldn't have helped me to say, hey, I need another mirror. That wouldn't have helped, you see. I had to pull out the shaving stuff and the toothpaste and all of that. See, the law can't do anything but point out our sin and that's what Paul had taken us to. He said we're all under sin, remember in chapter three, verse nine, and he began by saying, even those without the law, even those without any specific revelation, have a general revelation of God that's sufficient to leave us all without excuse because the very creation screams to us the eternal nature and the divine wisdom and power of God. And yet we suppress that truth and unrighteousness and, and worship idols. So we're without excuse. And even those that can look at those who sin such and say, well, they're wrong to do that, still do it anyway. And even without the law, we know that created in the image of God, we have the law of God in some sense written on our hearts and we can't even obey that. But then even with the law, it still doesn't enable us to obey in such a way that we can be justified before him. But now, that is now that Christ has come. But now, at this moment in history, the righteousness of God, that is God's holiness, but also the gift that he gives us of righteousness. The righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been shown apart from the law, and then he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In, in a sense, this isn't new, it's now just made known. Now we can really see it, it's, it's come to, Fullness, because now Christ has come. Before he hadn't everything pointed to him, but now Christ had come. In fact, even as Paul laid out his definition of the gospel in Romans 1 16 and 17, where he writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first to the, the Jew and then the Greek. Um, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Old Testament, he said, Habakkuk knew this, that the righteous, the just, the ones righteous will live by faith. In fact, in chapter 4, Paul will go to great lengths to show that this was true for Abraham. And you remember in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, after God had made covenant with Abraham, scripture says that Abraham believed God, faith, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, credited to him, as righteousness. Righteousness apart from the law. Law hadn't been given. Righteousness apart from the law that comes by faith. That comes by faith, you see, in Jesus. And and faith is significant here. Uh, Notice in verse 22, it's the righteousness of God through faith. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Then verse 26, that he might be the just He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith uh, in Jesus. Now the key thing about faith is the object of faith. Faith is a word that we use to describe how we receive what the object gives, what the object provides. Jesus is the object of our faith. That's why if you ever hear me use the expression, community of faith, you should correct me. Because that expression isn't helpful at all. It isn't helpful to be a community of faith. The question is, in whom, in what is your faith? <laughs> and that's what defines the community. And so it isn't people coming together with different faiths. There's nothing there to bind us because the only thing that matters ultimately is the object of faith. And for us, the only object that's helpful is Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, he is it. We can't depend on ourselves. He goes quickly, Paul does. He says, for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we can't depend upon ourselves at all. He's made that case, now he's summarizing it. He made that case beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, took it all the way through chapter, uh, verse 20 of chapter 3, and now he summarizes it. He says, all have sinned, every single human being, every single person ever, all have sinned, you see. And, and you know the definition of sin that we use, and they're good definitions. Sin missing the mark, like an archer bow and arrow with a target shoots misses sin uh, you can uh, it applies to free throws uh you miss it you've sinned um uh, it applies to tests uh you miss one you've sinned some of you miss some of you sin quite often on exams over the course of your life right i mean that's what it means to miss the mark you haven't been perfect you see to miss the mark um we, we, we prayed this morning that we would be forgiven uh, for the things, because we did things we ought not to do, and we didn't do the things we should do, sins of commission, things of, sins of omission. Our catechism says that sin is every want of conformity to and transgression of the law of God. When we don't conform to the, the law of God, when we don't do it, um, when we do things we ought not do, that's this sense of of sin, we've all, we've all sinned. And remember, when we talk about sins against the commands of God, sins against God, uh, the, the commands of God are for our good, you see. This is what it means to live a flourishing, good, perfect life. These aren't arbitrary commands. This isn't just God making illicit things to see if we'll do them or not, but these things are for our well-being. And, and every sin, you see, uh, is an offense against God when we sin against him. And it's harmful to us and to others. And when we steal, it's offensive against God who who provides, you see. You see, he provided enough. And when we we steal from another, we take from them, it hurts them, and it hurts us as well because it's degrading to who we are as human beings to be thieves, you see. And every sin is like that. So Paul goes on and he said, we've all sinned, but this is past tense, this is aorist. and, and, and turn to, to Romans in chapter 5 and verse 12. I don't know that I'll get to chapter 5 <laughs> before I retire. So Romans 5 verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What Paul is getting at here, and when we get to that, perhaps we'll have opportunity to see it, But what Paul's getting at here is that in Adam we sinned. When Adam sinned, we all sinned because we're united to him. He's our representative before God. That's how God established creation. Just as Christ is our representative, Adam our representative. And so when Adam sinned, his sin was imputed to us, credited to us, just as Christ's obedience was credited to us. And so his sin was credited to us. So that's why we say we're born in sin in this sense of we're born already polluted, already corrupted by sin and under its penalty. And so he says, we've all sinned. It's that deep, it's that desperate for us. And then he says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever played with that, thought about, meditated upon that expression? to fall short of the glory of God. Whatever could he mean? Well, we've been created in the image of God to reflect him, to glorify him. When we sin, we fall short of that. In fact, this little word, fall short, is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as lack, L-A-C-K. You Remember when the rich young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they talked about the commandments, and and the man said, I've done all of those. And then Jesus said, but you've fallen short. One thing you lack. And see, what we lack now is the glory of God. We've been created in his image, and now the glory is gone. Because you see, our glory is God. Our glory is to reflect him. I've often wondered, what it would it be like to have been in the Garden of Eden and seen Adam before he sinned and seen him after he sinned? What would the difference be? My suspicion is I'd be able to look and say, the glory's gone. It doesn't reflect God. as he wants to, It doesn't reflect God in his body because his body would deteriorate and die and death doesn't reflect God, you see. And his mind would be corrupted in a way that his mind would no longer be glorious as it once was. It would no longer think the thoughts of God and what he would say and what he would do. We would see the glory, you see, it's gone. It's, it's departed. Now we know that this glory will be restored to us in, in chapter 5 and verse 2 of, of Romans we read, through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's going to be restored to us. The glory is going to be restored to us. We'll perfectly reflect God. In fact, in Romans, in, in chapter 8, uh, in verse 18, uh, very comforting verses to us, I trust. Um, the apostle writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Wow, the glory. And then in verse 30, we see uh, the, 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 the assurance, the promise of that. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, you see. This glory, I remember I'm presently rereading some things. I'm presently rereading a biography of Martin Um, Lloyd-Jones. He's been a great help to me over the years. And when he was dying, um, it's purported that people came to him and he would say to them, don't pray for my healing. Don't hold me back from the glory. But see, we've fallen short of it. God is our glory. To reflect him is our glory, you see. And Paul says, you haven't got anything. How can we stand before a glorious God without glory? How can we stand before a glorious God ungloriously, if you will, and then be there? Can, can you even picture that? I mean, think about the rich young ruler. Remember that parable that Jesus told? Think about the rich young ruler, and you could see him when he was living with his dad, when he was living in his father's house, and he was, he had everything that, that his father had, all the wealth and all the glory of his father's name, and you could probably see him go through town all decked out, dressed in a way that was glorious, and the camel he drove was probably the glorious model of the camels of the day, and you would see, but then the next picture of him, he's eating what the pigs are eating. And you can make a number of comments there, but you could say, the glory's gone. Now, we don't see it so much because we're in it. But a day will come and it'll be restored and we'll see it. But right now, Paul is saying, listen, you've got nothing as you stand before the Lord. There's nothing in you that will righteous you before him. You've sinned, you've fallen short. You started out that way. It's because of being a human being and tied to Adam. And the glory's gone. But then he goes on. He says, for all, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, again, declared righteous. Righteous and all are righteous by His grace as a gift. Now at this point, I suppose, all the uh, grammar uh, teachers in Rome scratch their head and says, Paul, that's redundant. Grace is a gift. (laughs) Of course grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. Uh, Gifts are grace. That's that's what grace grace means. And, And yes, it's gloriously redundant. Some translations have it that we have um, been justified uh, freely by his grace, and then translated gift freely. Again, fascinatingly, in other parts of the scripture, that word that's translated here gift or freely is translated without cause or for no reason. Now, there's a reason. The reason's in God. It's not in us. He says grace means that you've received this for no reason in you. You, you don't, there's nothing about you. It's all about God, you see. And he says, grace freely, as a gift. One wordsmithing theologian says, grace is non-contributory. Like, we don't contribute anything. It's all from God. That's what makes it grace. It's, it's free. We don't contribute Uh, anything to it at all. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I quoted John Gershner when he said, when we come to Christ, all we need is need. And all we bring is nothing. Actually, it's worse than that. We bring our sin. That's this sense of grace, of course. And it's faith. Faith. It's by faith, it's by faith in Jesus. Now, you have to realize a couple of things. One, that, that our faith in and of itself, faith doesn't save, Jesus saves. Faith is how we receive that which the object of our faith provides, right? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. For instance, if you're dying of thirst, and your hand grabbed a glass of water and drank it. We wouldn't say you were saved by your hand because if your hand had grasped a glass full of sand, you would have died. Hands don't save. Water saves the thirsty one. Faith doesn't save in that sense. Christ is the one, Christ is the one who saves. And I say that because uh, the great danger, if we concentrate on on faith, two things could happen, both of which are bad. One is that we might find something in ourselves for which to boast. We may say, did you see my faith? We probably wouldn't say that, except inside. But did you see my faith? Or I'm going to do this so people will see my faith. And we, we boast in our faith. Paul's going to exclude that in the next paragraph. But then the other thing that could happen, which would be harmful is that when we begin to doubt, we'll spend our time thinking about our faith. That doesn't help at all. What helps us when we doubt is to think about Christ, not our faith. This isn't about that, it's about Christ. And as we grow in him, as we think on him, and we meditate on him, and we're more confident in him, then faith is there accompanying that. So we must not. Concentrate, you see, just on, our, just on our faith. And remember, faith is never a work. It looks apart from itself, not to itself. So faith isn't a work. It isn't like the Old Testament. Well, uh, God said you need to obey, and now in the New Testament, he says all you need to do is have faith. It is true we need to have faith, but faith isn't a work. It isn't something that merits this salvation. Again, lest we should boast. So we're justified by his grace So now the question is, how does that happen? On What basis does that happen? How can God justify us? How can he declare us not guilty? How can he say, you are righteous in my sight? How can he say that, um, really? Well, there's three words that he gives us that we need to cling to. The first is the word redemption. The second is the word propitiation. And the third word is in verse 26. And it's the, it's, it's the culmination of those other two in this passage, really. And it's the word show, or you might have it in another translation, to demonstrate those three words, you see. He redeems us. Redemption. If, as justification is a word from the law court, redemption is a word from the marketplace. And in Paul's day, marketplace was the slave market. Now slavery in the days of Paul were diff- was different in, in our day perhaps, but it's still slavery, it's still not good, it's still horrible. But there was a way in the days of Paul that a slave could purchase his or her freedom because they would be paid. Or someone else could come and purchase their freedom. In the Hebrew culture that was called a kinsman redeemer, if you remember the book of Ruth. So what Paul is saying here is that God can justify us because of this redemption, because he redeems, he pays a price, and the price is sufficient to free us. And the price, he says, is Christ Jesus. And he puts him forward as a propitiation. Now we know this word, propitiation, I hope. Uh, It has two aspects to it. One is this aspect of what we call expiation, which he covers our sins, our sins are forgiven. But there's another aspect of this that's crucial. And that is that he also quenches or satisfies or assuages the wrath of God. Now in chapter 1, verse 17, we verse 18, we talked about the wrath of God, because the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and unholiness. And we mentioned there that some people think that the wrath of God is sort of unbecoming of God or below God, but it isn't at all. And it isn't because the wrath of God is perfect and it's righteous. It's a reflection, really, of his righteousness, of his holy anger against sin. Now, part of the difficulty we have with coming to grips with the wrath of God is because we sometimes think of God too much like we think of ourselves. And we know that our anger is rarely if ever perfectly righteous. Even on a good day, uh, there's a little bit too much of us in there or I'm better than you in there when we're righteously angry at others. But for God, it's never just because he's ill-tempered or he got up on the wrong side of the bed that morning or whatever you want to say by way of metaphor. But it's that he's righteously, rightly angry, wrathful against that which is evil and that which is against him is evil because he's perfectly righteous. And so what do we do? Well, on the one hand, you could say, well, we're forgiven. But then is God still mad? Is God still righteously angry? I mean, could you imagine, I know he forgives me, but he's still mad at me. And so how does that affect your praying? And particularly, how does that affect you when you die and you meet him? You're not going to get such a warm welcome after all. Oh, forgiven. But he says, no, 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 I put my son as a propitiation. To satisfy, to quench, to assuage my anger. In other words, I'm not angry at those who have faith in Jesus. It's already been dealt with. Now, you see, we know, even in our anger, that there are some things that we should be angry about. We should be angry about injustice be angry about murder. We should be angry when people's reputations are destroyed. We should be angry when people slander and gossip and hate and steal and all of that. It's a good anger to that. And if we just just overlook that, if we yawn about that, that's immoral. So God in his righteousness is to deal with our sin. And he deals with our sin by taking the guilt of it and placing it upon Jesus. And he deals with it. And once he's dealt with it, in Jesus, it's dealt with, it's forgiven. That's why we sang this morning, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because once his wrath is assuaged, then he's for us. So who could really be against us? And, And the situation isn't that the father's mad, at us and so the son says well I better do something about this so he comes and dies for us and presents his blood to the father and he says you okay now and, and the father says yeah I'm okay now and it's not that at all because you see It's God who so loved the world that he gave his son. It's out of love that Jesus came. It was out of the plan of the father that Jesus came. They're together in this. That Jesus comes and he comes voluntarily to glorify his father out of love for his father, to redeem people for his father. Uh, And he he says, I do this out of love and I do it voluntarily. Nobody takes my life, but I lay it down. And he did it joyfully. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. You see, they're together in this. They're one in this. It isn't the abuse of the son that the father sends him. No, 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 no. This is the plan of God. And it isn't like pagan worship. It isn't like you and I have to do something, sacrifice our children or anything else in order to quench the wrath of God. We do nothing. He does it all. You know, there's always that question around, around Easter time. That we, we like to talk about who really is responsible for the death of Jesus. And you could say, well, the Romans, and you could say, well, the Jews. And you could say, Judas. You could say, we are our sin. But we know from the prophet Isaiah that it was the Lord's will to crush him. That this was God's predetermined plan. God is. And so now you see God's wrath is quenched, extinguished for those who believe in Jesus. So why all of this? Now notice verse 26. Let me read from verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who faiths, has faith in Jesus. You see, it's a legitimate question to ask, how can God declare Bill Vogler righteous? That's a legitimate question because you could say, you know, I know him. Trust me, he's not righteous, he's a sinner. So, so how can a holy God who is righteous, righteous bill? Because the scriptures um, replete with passages that tell us about the righteousness and the holiness of God, for instance, um, Proverbs 17, verse 15 says, he who justifies the wicked and who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. In other words, the Lord says, you can't acquit the guilty. How can you do that? But he's done that for, for me. If you're a Christian for you. In fact, he even goes on before that. He says, even uh, in, in, in the Old Testament days, In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He passed over the sins of Abraham. He passed over the sins of David. Can you imagine? I mean, here's David. He sins grievously in ways that we just, catches our breath. He took this woman, who was the wife of another man, to be his own. And then he took her husband and he put him in the front of the battle line so he'd be killed. And he did it and it seemed like he didn't didn't even think about it. It took a while before the prophet could even convince him that what he had done was a sin. He seemed to be able to live just fine with himself. And God forgave him. How could he do that? And be just? He said, well, because I'm righteous. So in my righteousness, I sent my son, my holy, perfect son. And I placed the guilt of sinners upon him. And he paid the price, the penalty, the ransom, so you could be set free. Just like Jesus said, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he said, "And that's my propitiation. He's quenched my anger, my wrath. It's satisfied. That's all that needed to be done. That's everything that needed to be done. And so when I declare a sinner who trusts in Jesus, righteous, I break no laws. I've tied every knot. And so you see, if anyone ever comes against me and says, how can God righteous you? How can God justify you? How can God accept you and all of that? My answer is because he's righteous. He didn't slip anything under the door. There's no loopholes here. Everything's tied up perfectly. And I have to tell you, when that first dawned on and I knew it as a kid, and it's like you know it, but when it really dawned on me, that it really is completely done by every moral code, every righteous code, every, everything righteous about God, it's done, no one, no one can make a case that God can't righteous sinners like me because God has done it perfectly. I've done a thing, but God has done it perfectly. So here's the spoiler alert for where Paul's headed. Turn to chapter 11. Where Paul wants us when he's finished with all of this is for this to be not only on our lips but as deep in our guts as possible. That we would look at what Christ has done and we'd say, oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord who has been his counselor, or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.